Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful rainy day. Uh, we especially want to welcome our guests and visitors and those join, joining us online. My name is Nayaswami Anandi. This is Nayaswami Bharat. And the talk this morning will be given by ba Badri Matlock. We'll uh, begin with a reading from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. These are um, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. This week's reading begins with a question. The title is, is a question. Is God present even there where there is ignorance? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, makes a reference to the divine light that is obscure to the rational faculty, but that enlightens our higher nature. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Reason recoils from this statement with innumerable questions. What is this darkness? Is it conscious that it should comprehend anything? What sort of light would be capable of shining in darkness without transforming it, transforming at least that part of the darkness in which it shines into light? Does this light shine only at night? And if so, why only then? The solution is that to divine sight, even daylight seems darkness. The sun itself, like the moon, which shines only by reflected light from the sun, is but a kind of reflection of the cosmic light, which being immaterial, is invisible to the eyes, but which, which is the great source of all material reality. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda describes his youthful visit to Ram Gopal Musumdar, the sleepless saint, who lived in the vision of that hidden light. Around midnight, Yogananda wrote, Ram Gopal fell into silence, and I lay down on my blankets. Closing my eyes, I saw flashes of lightning. The vast space within me was a chamber of molten light. I opened my eyes and observed the same dazzling radiance. The room became a part of the infinite vault, which I beheld with interior vision. Why don't you go to sleep? Sir, how can I sleep in the presence of lightning, blazing whether my eyes are shut or open? You are blessed to have this experience. The spiritual radiations are not easily seen. The saint added a few words of affection. This is the light that shineth in darkness. It has been described variously in the great scriptures. In the Bhagavad Gita, the 11th chapter, the devotee Arjuna is given an experience of the infinite state and exclaims in awe, if there should rise suddenly within the skies, sunburst of a thousand suns, flooding earth with beams undeemed of, 
then might be that Holy One's majesty and radiance dreamed of. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. So happy to welcome you to our Sunday service here, especially our guests and those watching online. I'll start with a reading from Whispers from Eternity, as is customary. This is Demand for Thy Light. I am here before thee, Father, hurling again and again the spears of prayer to pierce the bulwarks of thy dark silence. Missile after missile of yearning for thee must surely break down in time the ramparts of my ignorance and delusion. With firm faith, I invoke thee. Shine before my gaze the searchlight of true wisdom, that I find some chink in those high walls of my ignorance, that I may rescue thee from the dungeon to which my lower self so long ago consigned thee. So our reading today, um, was admittedly a little puzzling to me at first when I noticed Swami Kriyananda's title to the reading um, where he, he poses that question, Anandi read, you know, is God present where there's ignorance? And uh, the subsequent reading you may have noticed is really about light and darkness. And there isn't a lot of explanation directly or hinting towards the connection between the two. Um, reflecting on this a little bit more, I realized, at least from my perspective, that in part, anyhow, what Swamiji was doing is equating our uh, ignorance, which is basically our darkness, with uh, light, with God, or our divinity. You know, within each one of us, there's this dichotomy of light and darkness. And that's the essential makeup of this world. And Yogananda said that uh, ignorance is our greatest delusion, or he said, rather, ignorance is the greatest disease. And reflecting on this, I thought, you know, is disease our natural state? <laughs> we know that to be well, to be vital, to be whole is who we really are on a physical level. And so it is that divinity is our natural state, and God and light is who we are but um, we may not have that full realization yet. Uh, as Swami Kriyananda put it, I believe on more than one occasion, he said, we're basically faced with two distinct possibilities in this world, in life. The first is that we are a divine incarnation. Okay, we're basically an avatar, uh, a liberated soul sent here for the salvation of our fellow man. Okay, that's option one. Uh, the second possibility, perhaps, is that we are a soul, perfect in God's light, but not yet fully aware of that reality, and that we have some spiritual lessons yet to learn. So you'll humor me as I uh, share further based on the assumption that most of us are in that second category, okay? Um, 
again, in, in thinking about light and darkness, I stumbled on something in the field of um, astrophysics, of all things. And it's an instrument. There's an instrument in astrophysics called the spectrometer. And the spectrometer, like the telescope that Galileo discovered, um, uses a wide lens at its receiving end to collect far more light than is visible to the human eye. And so basically in viewing this otherwise invisible light, um, the spectrometer goes further to refract that light through a prism, right? As I understand it, like a crystal. And observing the different wavelengths, you know, the rainbow spectrum of light, the spectrometer allows the observer to determine the elemental makeup of the object under observation. So this is how scientists tell us we can know or we ascertain that the entire visible universe, the cosmos, is made of the same essential elements or building blocks. So as we know, we are stardust, you know, and everything is, is that same makeup. And so I thought similarly, as spiritual scientists, as yogis, we're equipped with a special instrument. It's located here at the point between the eyebrows, and we could call it the spiritual eye-ometer. <laughs> and we can view the world in terms of light from this point. Through our meditation and cultivating our spiritual awareness, we can see the world as it truly is in its essential reality as a world of God's light. Um, as Yogananda once remarked uh, with a gathering of devotees present, he said in a blissful state, he said, if you could only see how beautiful you all are, I see you all as waves of light, of gold and silver light. And so that is who we are, is that light. And again, reflecting further, I also thought of this uh, quotation that's fairly well known from the Bhagavad Gita in chapter two, where it's said that what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. And what is night to the person of the world is day to the yogi or the spiritual seeker. And, you know, it, it struck me again that, you know, everything we see in this world can be deceiving. You know, we know it's all God's light, perhaps, but it isn't always necessarily that easy to discern. And we have to discipline ourselves to see the world with divine vision. Uh, Ramakrishna, a great saint from India, put it very interestingly. He said, observe the crow, the bird. He said, the crow is a clever animal. It is resourceful, intelligent. It flees at the first sign of danger, but it cannot help but feed on filth. You know, so the worldly mind and man and ego similarly likes to be very clever sometimes, but essentially feeds on darkness uh, if we allow it, if we permit it. You know, it takes a certain pleasure in the darkness, and there's a cyclical nature to that if we indulge it. So again, we have to be weary of the mind, and very often it all starts in the mind. Um, and again, we can train ourselves to see the world as light. I was reminded also of a joke where a Catholic and a Baptist and a Christian scientist go to hell. And 
<laughs> upon arriving in the dark place, they kind of look around and say, what are you doing? How'd you get here? And the Catholic says, well, it must have been that mass that I missed a while back. And the Baptist says, well, I must not have been fully immersed when I, you know, at my baptism. Oops. And um, they look at the Christian scientists and they say, well, what are you doing here? And he says, but I'm not. <laughs> so look it up. If, <laughs> if you don't know the Christian scientists, not unlike the yogi, to some extent, they view the world as essentially an illusion, you know, and that all disease, you know, starts in the mind. So does that sound familiar? Again, spiritual disease or ignorance can affect us on, on all levels. And we have to be watchful and weary of the mind. We have to use discrimination and the sole power of discipline and intuition. Um, again, on the subject of discipline, I read something interestingly um, from a great disciple of Yogananda, Brother Turyananda. And he said, we have to learn to discipline ourselves or else God will have to use the two by four. <laughs> so it is in our own best interest, you see, to discipline ourselves in ways that will feed the soul and help us to live increasingly in God's light. And of course, meditation is the greatest discipline there is for the yogi. And love for God is the greatest source of light. Um, but again, it's, it's not always easy. It takes practice. As the reading said, uh, these radiations are not easily seen to young Yogananda. But reading that passage or rereading it, you know, from the autobiography of a yogi is thrilling. You know, this incredible experience of God's light. It, I love, these are two of my favorite chants, you know, thousands of suns and what lightning flash glimmers in thy face, Divine Mother, seeing thee I am thrilled through and through. And yet, in our meditation practice, this isn't always necessarily the experience. You know, we need to discipline ourselves and sometimes meditation is just a little bit of calmness, perhaps. But to be sure, that experience of God's light, blissful and thrilling, will be all of our experience at last. Um, but again, just to, through a little calmness, Yogananda said, when the mind becomes calm, it becomes a divine altar for the presence of God. So just in that little bit of calmness, we can experience a deep state of God. And how do we do that? You know, more than just meditation, um, there are so many ways we can pursue um, God's light and grow spiritually. But to be sure, in this context and on our spiritual path, the guru and the path or the practice both of Kriya Yoga are the essential, you know, tools that will take us there. The guru literally means dispeller of darkness. And what is the guru? Surely it's not Paramahansa Yogananda, who was born in 1893 and died in 1952. Far more than that, the guru represents that force which will lead us out of darkness. Swami Kriyananda gave the example of being lost in a dense forest, again in darkness, unable to find our way out, when in fact 
the way might just be a few steps through the trees. But until we are led by such a one who knows the way out, then we may never find it. And we will not, in fact, until we submit to the wisdom and the influence of a true guru. And the guru also reminded me of this story, which many of you will be familiar with, that is worth recounting, as Swami Kriyananda does in his own autobiography, The New Path, um, as it was told to him by Sri Rama Yogi, I believe, also known as um, uh, Yogi Ramaya. And it's the story of Namdev, a great saint from India, who lived in a village where in the temple there, he would worship God as Lord Krishna. And he would have visions of Lord Krishna and converse with him. And there was another certain saint in the village there who was a potter by trade. And in, at one gathering in the temple, when many were present, this potter saint, uh, as well as Namdev being present, this potter saint took it upon himself to go around striking, hitting each of those present upon the head. And it's explained that in this way, a potter can test his wares his vessels by striking them and feeling for their soundness and their integrity. And so as he proceeded to slap each of those present, he came to Namdev and he slapped Namdev. And this was hurtful to Namdev on his face, probably, and in his soul. He thought, why would he strike me, his spiritual equal? And furthermore, the potter saint declared, there's a crack in this pot. And Namdev was hurt. And later he prayed to Lord Krishna, why did you allow me to be treated this way? Why did this happen? And Lord Krishna replied, well, what can I say, Namdev? There is a crack in that pot. And as a good, humble disciple, you know, devotee, he said, what can I do? And Lord Krishna instructed him to go and find his guru. He said, he is the one who can help you. And so upon seeking his guru out in this appointed town, in this village, in this temple, he only found a man disheveled and laying half asleep on the temple floor. And he thought, surely this cannot be my guru. And upon further review, he was shocked to see this man's feet, his legs lying atop the Shiva Lingam, a sacrilege, a, you know, a, a sacred object that was being desecrated. And he couldn't stand for this. So he went to move the man's legs. And upon putting them in a new spot, another Shiva Lingam appeared, as if by magic. And as he went to move his legs, another Shiva Lingam appeared, and another. And so it was through this miracle that he beheld, this is my guru. And he is showing me the true experience of God. And so submitting humbly to his guru, then and there, his master gave him the touch of enlightenment, of Samadhi. And experiencing that fathomless state of God, Namdev wandered from then blissfully through the country. And my favorite part of the story at the end, of course, he returns to his hometown and his village in the temple there at last. And again, he visits or is visited by the form of Lord Krishna, his beloved. And Krishna says to him, my child Namdev, why has it been so long you have not come to see me here in the temple? And Namdev replies, 
how could I come and see you here, Lord, when I've been beholding you everywhere? And with a smile, the Lord replies again, now there is no crack in this pot. So Namdev, like each of us, went on to realize beyond even that highest state of communion with God is realizing God through the guru everywhere. And only the true guru can take us there. So we need to hang on to that one and make that our pole star. That will guide us to God. Upon realizing the guru and working with the guru everywhere, we will find all of our relationships. Everything in life becomes beautiful. Not always pleasant, not always seemingly perfect. But as I look around me, even now, in this, the expanding light temple, in the magnificent temple of light across the meadow here, you know, in this beautiful community, as Kriyananda called his book on spiritual communities, Cities of Light, this is a community, a family of light. And as I see my friends over the years on this path of light, I see them in their ups and downs. We see relationship and interpersonal challenges. We see financial challenges and karma. We see serious health challenges among our friends. And yet we see them shining with God's light through their trials because they are walking this path of light. And when viewed through that lens of God's light, everything becomes beautiful and transformed in that light. As increasingly we live in light in this manner, we find that anything literally becomes possible. There's one more story I'd like to share with you, and it's from the life of St. John of the Cross. And he was a great saint and a contemporary of St. Teresa of Avila. So John of the Cross is a 16th century um, Christian mystic. And together with Teresa, who really spearheaded the reform of the church, they brought back the devotion and the living for God that had been lost through the uh, convents at first and then through the monasteries and beyond. In fact, after starting her movement with great opposition from within the church, um, St. Teresa uh, first met John of the Cross when she was ready to start her work in the monasteries. And she was visited by two monks, a large, fat prior, and this scrawny little monk who was John of the Cross. And she was known for her wit and humor as well. She opened the door and said, Lord, thou hast sent me a monk and a half <laughs> to start my work among men. <laughs> and they went on to become great friends, John and Teresa, and to lead this movement of reform through the church of living for God again. And uh, in one rather dramatic episode of this, um, the extremists, the orthodox extremists, actually went so far as to kidnap John of the Cross, this dear friend of Teresa and the leader of this reform in the monasteries. And furthermore, they kidnapped him and, and imprisoned him in the cell, in a prison cell in the walls of a certain monastery. And they kept him there and essentially tortured him 
they fed him food scraps and water twice per week, and they took him out and they beat him regularly. And at the pinnacle of this torture, um, John of the Cross was beat and, and tortured brutally by all these you know, members of the church and this monastery. For 17 consecutive nights, he was taken from his cell, he was beaten, and he was thrown back into the wall there. And at the culmination of this experience, he was visited by the Divine Mother. And she appeared to him in a vision of light. And this was when he received the inspiration to write his most well-known spiritual masterpiece, the Spiritual Canticle, in 17 verses. And at the end of this vision, the Divine Mother told him, it's time to leave your cell now. And so with his emaciated and broken body, he easily removed the bars of his cell, the iron bars, and climbed through the window to the roof. And he jumped over the walls into some trash and escaped to a nearby convent. And so it is that we will behold miracles, even in our own lives, through more and more living in God's light. It really all comes down to this rather simple equation of light and darkness. Um, it's almost comical in the reading as Swami was explaining the reason faculty. What is darkness that it can comprehend anything? What is light that can shine in darkness without illuminating it? You know, we, we can't get trapped in the mind or fall for the trap of the ego that would have us see God's light, or rather anything else but God's light. As we progress spiritually, uh, every experience will serve to illuminate us on the spiritual path. And more and more, we will experience that one true reality. As Yogananda said of meditation, he said, the soul loves to meditate. It's the ego that resists. And so, too, the soul loves to live in light. And it becomes gradually easier and more and more blissful when we repeat and gather momentum, these practices and this one practice of living in light. I, for once, hadn't planned to uh, share anything about my children when I spoke today, <laughs> but I'll forsake that now. When, just very briefly, when I share with you that at the breakfast table this morning, I told my daughter, Tulsi, age five, and son, Jay, three, I told them, Daddy's going to do Sunday service and talk about light and darkness. And Tulsi said, between bites of her oatmeal, she said, are you going to talk about how light always wins? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the end of the discussion. <laughs> and... That yeah, light, the light does always win. And it behooves us to use the, the practices, the discipline, the techniques, the guru that are going to get us there swiftly. But again, let us make no mistake that victory is at hand for the spiritual seeker who lives in light. As Yogananda said, a thousand million suns does not begin to describe the light of my father. And that light is shining within 
each one of us, if we would but open ourselves to receive it and to shine, just as the analogy, common analogy of the diamond and the coal, both essentially made of carbon, um, can be held in darkness or in sunlight, but only the diamond that has undergone the tremendous pressure and intensity of heat that is required to take that crystalline structure can we too as the soul reflect God's light in all of its brilliance. And increasingly through our meditation, we will feel God's light beating in our hearts, thinking through our thoughts, loving through our friendships, and in every part of our lives. And may we all be filled with God's light and share that with everyone. Oh.